All right. Hi, and welcome to Things of Interest. I'm Sophia France. And I'm Serena Chen. And this week we've also got the guest, uh, Cassandra Teese. Hello! She's the Artistic Director of the Red Scare Theatre Company in Wellington, and she has a podcast called The Tony Club, where her and James. <laughs> James. Ah, some other white boy name. A different name. Watch the Tonys and then talk about them. Ah, uh, and it's yeah. quite good. Yeah, what we do is we read all of the Tony Award winning best play and best musical plays. We've sort of started from the first one and then going through them very, very slowly because we're both very busy and don't get time to do a lot of stuff. But that's the plan is to go through the Tonys by reading the plays and then talking about them. Slash sometimes watching filmed versions or other stuff if we've got access to that as well, which is always quite nice. And that fits in really well with this week because this week we're going to talk about film. We've all mm-hmm. watched films before. Serena's. Um, and myself have both been involved in making a film to the 48-hour film competition, and I can confirm it's very terrible. <laughs> I've also done 48-hour film. I guess I don't really oh, count yay. that when I tell people I have no filmmaking because I feel like it doesn't count as actual film. But, yeah, you know, I have done 48-hour films, yeah. It means we're all basically experts is what, what we're Great. saying here. Yeah, we definitely know what we're doing. But, like, realistically, looking at how film has moved over the past sort of, like, history of film we still don't see a lot of stories that focus around women without being labeled as chick flicks when you look at films like bridesmaids and when you look at films that are typically melissa mccarthy films god i love her want to be her and hidden figures those are really rarities in a world in which the lens of filmmaking particularly blockbuster filmmaking is typically through that of as always white men and so this episode is kind of us talking about films we like films we like and are embarrassed about and more generally about film about the engagement of women in film and sort of touching on racism and classism probably too that's how we do if you're a long-time listener you'll know this already so to kick us off what are your guys favorite film see i am one of the people that i'm real wishy-washy about (laughs) my favorite anything like I, I i find it really Unless it's like a particular thing where I've like nailed my colors to the wall and just decided that I've got a thing that this is now going to be my favorite that I'm going to champion, um, which like musical theater, which is what I work in a lot. I have like my favorite musical, which I'll just defend to everybody. But for film, because I'm like, I haven't got a specific nail it to the wall thing. I just have like a range of films that I always come back to all the time and enjoy a lot, but aren't necessarily like this is my favourite film of all time, but just every so often I just like, somebody will mention it and I'm like, I really like that one. <laughs> but it's so hard to think of it, like when somebody's like, what's your fave film? Like I'm just like, mm. and it's all sort of um, very comfort food type films. Like I was talking the other day about like, you know the film Catch Me If You Can? I love Catch Me If You Can. Oh, that it's is such a great. Good film. It's, it's like back when Leo was like handsome and cute um, <laughs> in his baby face days. And just, it's such a, one of those random films that's like a big kind of, I guess sort of blockbustery, but it doesn't feel that blockbustery, and it's got Amy Adams being adorable in it, and it's mm. just sort of it's slightly too long, but I still really like it. <laughs> it's just a comfort food film of mine. And then there's like other things where you know you look at it and you're like, this is actually like a really good film in lots of ways that I could talk about structurally or and from a writing perspective and blah blah blah. But when you had to think of a favorite, the first things that always come up are just like random comfort food films. I think <laughs> they are me. the best. Yeah, I think mm. that for me would be Ocean's Eleven is my comfort food mm. film because it's it's a film that's just fun and ridiculous and no one speaks like that in real life, but I love it so much. Are you holding out for the all-women remake of Ocean's Eleven? Because, boy, I am. 
I'm I'm pretty excited for this. I think I think it will be quite fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, trying to keep my expectations like low so I don't come out disappointed. But I am quite excited. I think I saw a list online somewhere that was like listing and ranking the best coats in the the female Ocean's Eleven trailer. Oh my goodness! <laughs> and I noticed like Kate all Blanchett's the coats, very good. Who has the outfits, best? Kate Blanchett's oh. I think was top. Yes, um, <laughs> so good. It's like, it gonna be a lot to look at. It's gonna be great. Yeah, but in terms of like pivotal films that changed who I was and who I, and how I thought as a human. I think for a lot of people our age, The Matrix is up there in terms of just how... I know I sound like super cheesy right now, but no, I it really... It. Yeah, I genuinely, non-ironically love The Matrices 1 and 2. 2 as well, not 3. I have to say, I have only seen the first Matrix film. I have not seen the second and third one. The I third hear one lots of different people great. giving, saying generally like, yeah, like generally people really love the second one or they love the third one and they hate the other one of the two sequels. Yeah. So it's kind of like you get people that are either like one and two are canon or one and three are canon. Yeah. And nobody likes all three of them. But I can't, I can't comment having only seen the first one. Yeah, I think it depends on like whether you you love the Matrix for the action or you love the Matrix for the uh, the world building and the philosophy behind it. Because the second one is very um, it builds on the world that they created in the first one, and it's very philosophically heavy to the point where it's like I could mock this. This is it's getting ridiculous, and to the point where it's parodied quite a lot. And the third one is for those who are in it for the action because the plot. How do I say this? Uh, disappears, and it's just <laughs> fight scenes after fight scenes. So I guess that's where you'd see the differentiation in the fans. Hmm. But that's another thing that's really um, fascinating about massive movies with massive fan bases and how how different fans perceive and enjoy the same movie differently. I think it's been really interesting this year with the whole sort of the fan conversation around Last Jedi coming out from the Star Wars and how, like, I would not consider myself, like, a huge Star Wars fan. I've seen all of the main, like, the first, you know, original trilogy. Mm. I've only seen, I think, Phantom Menace of the next trilogy. And then I've seen both of these two new ones and Rogue One that came out. But because I didn't, it wasn't really, like, a fundamental part of my childhood. It wasn't one of those things that I grew up watching and kind of formed an identity around the way it was for a lot of people my approach to those films is really different and I really mm. really enjoyed Last Jedi I wasn't like this is my favorite film of the year but I thought that the sort of the storytelling was fun I enjoyed the humor when it was there like I very much appreciated that they had an Asian lead character as a woman that mm-hmm. was getting to do stuff and having a plot and yeah generally a lot of the people I talked to I think probably most of them really enjoyed it and then every so often I'll talk to somebody that's just like I hated that film oh my god what have they done and you know sometimes it's with malice and sometimes Sometimes they're just like, no, I just don't know. I just really wasn't really what I wanted. And I think uh, there seems to be more backlash from people that are so associated with this film that have made it such, well, not this film, but this Mm. franchise. It's been such a part of their childhood and growing up, blah, 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 that doing something slightly different with it or doing something that, I don't know, doesn't doesn't play up to their expectations exactly in the way that they wanted can be quite affronting and people take it as like this personal challenge (laughs) that it's not exactly the same as the other ones. Like, Luke has a sense of humour now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they say the, uh, the worst Star Wars critics are the biggest Star Wars fans. And it, it's it's interesting because it's like when you look at massive franchises like that or, I don't know, like Harry Potter or, you know, other things that are just as huge, the ownership of canon and the ownership of, like, who owns this universe, who controls this universe, who decides what is canon and what is not is kind of murky because, in a way, it's like a modern myth that everyone owns and, you know, everyone kind of 
builds on and everyone writes fan fiction for. So I can see why people are angry because Star Wars fans do so much investigation and digging around and speculation with all these like incredibly complicated fan theories between like the two years between The Force Awakens and The Last Jedi that I'm sure these fans have like a completely different idea of what Star Wars meant at that time and then to be, you know, to actually sit back and watch a movie when you, you've you done all this work towards building and predicting what you thought would happen. I can see how that would like kind of ruin the enjoyment of it. But yeah, I, I really loved it too. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you're saying about like people kind of taking that ownership of what they think a character looks like particularly when you like mentioning harry potter as an example when you look at like book adaptation into a film where in a book anybody looks like however you want them to look Mm. and then in a film it's concrete this is what this actor looks like and there was this whole thing recently i don't know again like from a theater perspective if you've been following cursed child which is the broadway and west end um new harry potter canon apparently um sequel which has a lot of problems mostly in that it's terribly written and there's some bad plot and blah 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 (laughs) But one of the not problems in it is that they cast uh, black actresses to play uh, Hermione and then Hermione and Ron's daughter, which has always been like a part of a a fan sort of side thing has often been people been reading Harry Potter and being like, oh, Hermione, like she's a person of color, like the way that she's described, they never talk about her in any way that clarifies that she's white um and the only things that are mentioned is that she has brown hair and it's frizzy which you could (laughs) definitely take as a reading to suggest that she's a person of color and then just because in the film she was cast with a white actress that doesn't necessarily mean she is and so they really embraced that with the stage production and were like well we're doing a new one and this Hermione is black and of course there was this fan outroar from people going like oh my god that is not what Hermione looks like because I have seen (laughs) these films and just so up in arms about it and like there are things to be up in arms about in Cursed Child but it's not a thing (laughs) and yeah it's that thing where it's like partially it's this ownership thing and then also it's a little bit of that this closed-mindedness of people see characters as white by default like apparently there were some americans that were really angry when they found out that cho chang was going to be cast as an asian because they had thought that even though she's got like a stereotypical not even realistic asian name they thought because it was in britain and they're Americans that didn't really understand how Britain works. That, I don't know, she maybe she was, like, British and then she was, like, adopted by Asians or something. And they hadn't really put it together and just they assumed that all of the characters in Harry Potter are white because British people are white in their view. And so there was, like, these teenagers that got really upset when they saw the casting of it. And there was this whole sort of thing where, yeah, people just really misread that and had some what? very strange assumptions. That's just silly. So her adopted parents are Asian. So Asians exist in Britain. Apparently. But... I don't know. It's like, it's, I, it's reading these articles about it and it's you see these kids' comments from like forums where they've written about their complaints. And yeah. you're like, the logic, as you're expressing this, you can see there's no logic in which this makes sense. <laughs> like, oh my God. People are, people are weird. People are strange. <laughs> the Last Jedi was kind of weird for me because I'm not a big Star Wars fan either. Um, I have mm. seen all of the saga movies and Rogue One. Star Wars was always like a very childish, plain, black and white, good versus evil, not much nuance story. And I never found it compelling. I never found it interesting. I found the acting to be terrible and the plot to be not so great. The best thing about it was like, oh, wow, you managed to do all these cool effects back in the 70s and the 80s. And that was quite cool. But The Last Jedi 
was really cool to me because it, it kind of changed my perspective on Star Wars. Um, Ryan Johnson, the writer-director, introduced a lot of nuance into what the Force was, introduced a lot of, you know, grey, introduced a lot of new ideas. It gave us a look that was worn and weary and tired, and it gave us a look that w was grappling with this push and tug and pull and this tension between him being just a person who, you know, as any human has, has faults, uh, has fears, is imperfect. And between that and the fact that Luke Skywalker is this legend, is this myth in the Star Wars universe, and because of his status as this legend, as a myth, he has certain responsibilities. And I thought that was really cool. And in a way, The Last Jedi made me care more about Star Wars in general, more than any other Star Wars movie has. It's actually made me want to rewatch the prequels, even though I know they're terrible movies. <laughs> because there's a lot of references back to themes in the prequels and in the original series. So, yeah, I thought it was like a brilliant, brilliant piece of writing by Ryan Johnson, and I really enjoyed it. And I'm still surprised that I enjoyed it, because I don't really care about Star Wars. <laughs> I think it's quite interesting, this is, again, coming from a very much a layman, that there seems to be a trend in film of, maybe there used to be, here are cerebral thinking person's films that are very much about like ideas and politics and the world and that sort of thing, and then here are blockbusters which are made for big dumb shooties and, and like <laughs> fights and stuff like that. And I think that nothing is apolitical. Like there's always been a politics that's inherent in that sort of stuff as well. But I think in recent years, there's more of a sense that big franchise films and blockbusters and that sort of thing should have political merit and, uh, and ideas. And they're saying something about the culture at large in ways that I think people didn't consider when they were making those films necessarily all the time before. And so actively being like, we're going to include more people of color in our casting of this thing, or, mm. you know, things like films like Wonder Woman that, that, that are made with this feminist lens in mind and films like Black Panther, which is coming out, which oh is God, specifically so... like, yeah, which I'm, I'm like excited so for, excited. even though I, like, I'm not not a superhero person, like superhero movie person at all. I'm looking at this going like, ah, oh, I would actually see this one because, you know, people are making this with certain types of political ideas in mind and bringing that into this popcorn sort of film. It's like, did you guys see Thor Ragnarok? Yes. I did not, but yeah. Yeah. And like, there's, there were interviews with Taika Waititi about how he slipped in all these different references to like indigenous liberation and things mm. into like not only the plot because there is stuff that's there in the text as well but like just iconography and images like he apparently painted all of the spaceship things that they fly where there's like one that's painted in the Maori flag colors and mm -hmm. one which is painted in like the aboriginal flag colors and mm -hmm. different things and it's sort of just like easter eggs for these causes that he supports and I think that's part of this thing of hopefully film moving in a direction where we're widening our idea of who the creators and the auteurs behind films get to be and have somebody like Taika Waititi who is not only a man of colour but is also actively part of activism and advocacy for Māori and for other indigenous peoples. It's like he's going to put that perspective even in these big blockbuster like shoot em up stuff and still have fun with it because he's you know you can still like popcorn stuff yeah. and action and be wanting to to say something politically interesting. And I think there's like a there's like a refugee kind of thing that's run like sort of strain that's running through Thor Ragnarok and parts as well and stuff like that which is like actually interesting in a commentary on the world despite the fact that it's about Norse god-like aliens that are fighting on a planet. 
it's cool that we are now getting this stage where you don't just have the thinking movies and just have the general public action spectacle films. Like, there is this fusion. And I think it means that the people that would never go to see the sit down in a room and talk films are still kind of getting (laughs) political analysis even if they don't necessarily know that they are. Yeah, and I think to some degree that's kind of always been there. And Mm. I mean, politics is everywhere no matter if we want it there or not. And maybe it's becoming more visible nowadays just because the messages that are being said are more progressive rather than sticking to the status quo. Because it's been a pretty common phenomenon that the military, the American military, sponsors a whole bunch of war movies. Uh, Independence Day was basically a massive... Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, massive recruitment for the American military. And that is very political, and that is a blockbuster. But um, people tended to blink twice at that, and that was about it, because it seemed... I don't want to say normal, but it seemed like it was just more of the status quo, like we should have Yeah, I guess it's the difference between, like, propagandist media mm. and subversive media exactly and yes. whether or not something that takes a lot of money and is therefore intrinsically part of like a capitalist system that's making this giant piece of money like can be subversive mm. and i think it used to be kind of common wisdom that anything that was that big just couldn't have any subversive political action to it it had mm. to be it had to be propagandist and i think yeah it's becoming less so so i remember hearing that i mean i'm a little bit younger, so this is not from my era, but that at Top Gun was in cinemas <laughs> in America, the Air Force would set up little like recruitment things mm. outside the cinemas and people would just sign up because they were like pumped because they just saw Top Gun. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's such a sneaky kind of like, yeah, let's just get people that really, when they're not really thinking about it and they're just thinking about, yeah, it'll be look fun. Tom Cruise might be there. <laughs> <laughs> you worded that perfectly, yeah. That's, that's exactly it. It's the difference between capitalist media and subversive media. It's really cool how we're starting to see more uh, subversive content in the mainstream, like especially with the Mm. massive blockbusters. One of my favorite lines in Thor Ragnarok was when Jeff Goldblum, who looks incredible in this, is talking to... (laughs) And his costuming is so good as well. So good. (laughs) So great. Love it so much. And it's just so him as well. Like that's that's Mm. just him playing himself, I'm pretty sure. Um, (laughs) Anyway, so he's talking to, um, I think it's like his his right-hand woman or something. I'm not sure what her name was, but she was telling him about how, like, oh, something, something about, you know, the slaves. And he's like, oh, no, don't say that word. She's like, what, mainframe? He's like, no, 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 the S word. And she goes, oh, sorry, the prisoners with jobs have escaped. (laughs) And that was just, like, (laughs) such a cutting piece of commentary that completely threw me Mm -hmm. off because I did not ever expect to hear anything like that in a Marvel blockbuster. Yeah, there's this whole sense of, and I think you get whenever you read, because I am interested in Taika Waititi's career, and so I read like interviews (laughs) with him quite a bit, and I think he has a sense of like, how the fuck did I get away with this? Like, (laughs) I, I... I, I don't know, somehow no one stopped me, and it's up on the screens now. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the thing. In general, I'm quite optimistic about the future of movie making and mainstream and where things are going. I know lots of people are more pessimistic about it. Like, I know that there's a like the whole there's a whole problem with the middle budget film mm. kind of uh, no longer really existing. There being this whole thing of these micro budget, really small stuff, and then there's really huge stuff, and the stuff in between kind of doesn't get made anymore. But then there's things like Netflix starting to make films and stuff like that and having they're having now the opportunity to make stuff which is in that middle budget, you know, whether or not they're using good content or not. Those sort of platforms, it's kind of like 
the money's coming from a new place and there's new people that can be making film. I kind of feel like, although it's been pretty like depressing in the last few months <laughs> with all of the general demasking of all of these terrible men that have been like sexual harassing and exploiting people in Hollywood, the fact that they are now being exposed and actually facing consequence for this is a step towards something that we haven't had because there's been exposures of these people for years and years and years mm. and nothing's happened and for the first time people are actually listening and actually actively harming people's careers and stopping them from making any more films and stopping them from being in those positions of power and making them face consequences, which is, like, kind of great. Um, so I am positive about the future of film because of this stuff, even though at the moment it feels like it's this constant drudge through to hearing about another person that's done something shit. It's kind of like, at least we are getting through it, and I think it's, you have to go through this in order to come out the other side where the status quo has changed. There's also an increasing interest in telling different types of stories as well, because I think for a very long time it was argued that, like, stories that didn't appeal to the mainstream like just wouldn't appeal to anyone but mm. then shows like hidden figures which was just an incredible film came out and did so incredibly well and it's a story about like three black coders in the 50s and 60s and the woman who wrote the book that it's all based on which is like really good as well margot lee shetterly she's been signed up for more books and more films and telling those stories like we're seeing i wouldn't say stories like the danish girl are good but we are seeing stories about queer and trans people that don't end in just, like, disaster or their death. And that's really exciting as well. Have you seen Call Me By Your Name yet? Um, I have not. <laughs> oh, Call Me By Your Name is beautiful. It is absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> it's my friend's, one of my friend's favourite films of all time, apparently. Wow. So he saw it, like, six or something times when it was in cinema. Um, oh, sorry, it's only his second favourite film after The Social Network, because <laughs> apparently he just really likes Army Hammer a lot. <laughs> um, he is very tall. Yeah. I think even something like Hidden Figures is one thing because it, it's one of those sort of films that because it is about civil rights in, in a certain way, like even though, yeah, I think it's really great that we're telling this story that's not particularly well known about the role that black women played in this particular American moment, I guess, of the space program. In other ways, you could say that that's kind of closer to the sort of POC story that we've been hearing in Hollywood, which is about struggle for rights and blah, blah, blah. And about, you know, about the differences between being white and being a person of colour and the difference, blah, blah, blah. Whereas you compare, I think, everything that's really interesting and really cool is you compare last year, there's two, like, girl comedies made, very similar premises. One of them flops hard. One of them becomes this incredible success that's, like, a huge crossover. And it's, like, Girls Trip, which is written by and for black women, mm. starring, like, solely black women pretty much, and black men, um, not that many white people in the cast, and focused on black women's stories. And then Rough Night, which is the opposite, which has got a whole lot of white women. And Rough Night kind of tanks despite the fact that people thought this was going to be this big super hit. And then Girls Trip, which was thought to be this niche just for black women film, becomes like beloved by a lot of people and like white audiences go see it and like lots of other ethnicities go and see it and it like men go and see it. And like a lot of people have said it's like one of the best films of last year. And it's this thing where you can be telling a story which like supposedly it's just for this audience and then now other audiences are starting to seek that stuff out because people were seeing it and realising like shit, like this is actually good. You know, it's like something like Moonlight mm. winning Best Picture last year. Moonlight is just an incredible movie. Oh, I'm getting feelings just thinking about it. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's just, yeah, it's just such a beautiful, beautiful film. And, you know, you'd think that's the sort of film that would be seen by art house audiences only because it's slow moving in terms of its, like, aesthetic and its filmmaking style. It's such an art house type 
thing. And not only that, it's focusing on gay men of colour. Mm. It's such a, you know, if you're going to put lots of niche things on a, on a particular film, there's all these identity markers that are supposed to make your standard, you know, middle-class white couple go like, oh, no, I don't think that's for us. <laughs> and then because of its critical acclaim, like this, this thing, and it's not a film which is about white people in any way like you could say hidden figures is a kind of a little bit about like how white people need to learn to accept these black women whereas moonlight is not about white people at all <laughs> <laughs> and that's not even part of the situation and yet it becomes this film that is not only beloved by critics but audiences go and see and becomes like the best picture of the year i think so i think that's super cool and that's such an optimistic trend as well because for centuries even all audiences have had to look up to the screen and empathize with white people's stories with male stories with straight people's stories and everyone has had to do that thing where the person on the screen doesn't look like me isn't me doesn't behave like me but i can still empathize with that i can still feel their struggles and their stories and i can still celebrate their moments of victory with them and now we're seeing that you don't need a specific type of uh, leading character. You don't need a specific type of story for people to just empathize because we're all human. And w with so many lush, rich, different stories from different backgrounds, and anyone can look up to the screen and empathize with that. Like, they don't have to be some white dude story, <laughs> as it always was. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's just so promising. I think about what a fantastic world we will have if we are teaching, you know, our sons to go to watch films that have got female protagonists and identifying with those girls. Mm. Like, how is that going to change how a man behaves towards women as he grows up if from childhood he's been seeing things with women as protagonists and girls as protagonists and not had to find a boy character and being like, oh, I guess I'm the boy, mm. but watched it and just identified with that character without othering them based on their, on their gender. And then the same in terms of like, yeah, in terms of homophobia, in terms of racism, in terms of all these different things that are societal markers of difference. It's just having to go through that act of being in a situation where you're watching a thing and there's nobody you can empathize with other than a person who has a different identity marker to mm. you. And actually having to go through that work of empathy, because empathy is, is work as is a muscle that we have to exercise. Mm -hmm. I think having people growing up with media that makes them do that is hopefully a thing that you know we should keep pushing for and keep working and keep making stuff and hopefully ends up with creating a society of people that just have more empathy for each other and that's a thing where if you were you know a white man growing up if you're a white boy for so many decades you go to television you go to movies you know before that you go to the theater you listen to the radio and the people that are your protagonists are mostly just other white men so you never have to do that work and so having to do that work more it just it's gonna increase i hope the empathy of the general population <laughs> and make for a better society so yay let's change the world yeah. yay beautiful <laughs> how did you guys feel about moana i really enjoyed moana i saw moana twice and cried both times i understand a lot of criticisms around moana in terms of the making a more palatable or less differentiated kind of pan-pacific culture 
for it. Mm. But in the context of the film, I didn't feel there was an issue with it. I mean, obviously, I'm not from that culture, so I can't give an authoritative answer. But I felt that because of it being set pre the original colonization of the islands of Oceania, like before we had Mm. all these different cultures of Samoan and Fijian and Māori and Tuvaluan and everything, it's like there was a different culture which was kind of a mix of all those things because it had the roots of all of those things within it. Yeah, I felt like it was really interesting that it had a story that was set at that time and showed that process and that history. Yeah, I also, I I cried a lot when I saw Moana (laughs) in the theatres. I think part of it was like, I've been living in Australia for three and a half years now Mm. and to see the stories that I was told like growing up, despite the fact that like I'm not part of that culture, like those are very much stories I associate with my childhood and like the point where I started crying was during Maui's song, like "You're Welcome," and I was just like, <laughs> "I grew up with this, and I'm really homesick." And my friend who took me was Australian, and he was just like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> like, oh, that is lovely. I'm like, oh, I just care deeply. <laughs> I saw something, I can't remember, it was like a a thing I read on Twitter about some film critic who has a three-year-old daughter who loves Moana, but she's really scared of it because parts of it are really a bit too scary for her. But she always refuses to turn it off, so she'll just be like crying because she's so scared. But then he goes to her and she's like, no, I keep (laughs) And he's like, so it ended up that she was swaying, like holding the television and singing, I am Moana, (laughs) to herself at the big climax of the film when they're watching it on TV and he's like this is so dramatic this is quite funny but very cute (laughs) and I do like I think it's so good for children to be able to go and see people that look like themselves on screen like you know I remember when I was a kid going to see like Mulan Mm. when I was a child and being like my family specifically taking me to things like that and making sure that that was sort of stuff that I had access to when I was growing up my family on my dad's Chinese New Zealand and my mum is Pākehā and my mum would always make sure that I had media when I was growing up that was not just like white media she was very very um conscious of it uh, and so like when I had Barbie dolls when I was a child they would always be the like mixed race looking Barbie ch- Barbie dolls and like you know she'd buy me things like Chinese Cinderella by Adeline Yen Ma when I was growing up so I could read about like Chinese like sort of things and yeah I think it was it's, she was very conscious of that throughout my childhood so I was lucky and then I got the chance to go and you know see things and both my parents are also theatre people so we'd always see like Lea Salonga and Lemmers and like doing various song roles and they'd be like see you can do that Aww. Which is pretty cool. Did anybody see Coco? No, that's on my list to watch. Um, I'm not quite Coco ready to is, cry. Coco is very though, cute. So. <laughs> okay, so be ready to cry yeah. if you can see Coco because like <laughs> we'll be very emotionally affecting. Yeah. Like if you like me cried during Moana when the grandmother's spirit came back mm. and turned into a stingray, then Dick Coco will definitely be too much because yeah. it was too much for me throughout lots of sections like that. But it still it was very good. It's beautiful animation as well. Yeah, I've heard so many great things about it. And I saw the trailer and mm. I saw the trailer and I immediately knew that this was going to be a movie where I just ugly cry the whole time. So I'm waiting <laughs> until I'm like ready for that. <laughs> and then I'll watch yeah. it. I'm finding that I cry at more kids' movies now that I'm a grown-up. Mm, and, like, I think the sort too. of... I cry more, generally. Yeah. I just... I watched Where the Wild Things Are in theatres, so I probably would have been 16 or 17. And that was a point where, like, I just sobbed. I cried that entire film. Like, I just... Oh. Oh. 
I think when I was growing up, I had a real this kind of chip on my shoulder about not being a person that cried much Same. during films and was very much like, no, that's like weak. Like, it's like silly. I don't do that. I think it's a, it's a very internalized misogyny thing that a lot of people have, like a lot of yeah. women have growing up where it's kind of like, no, nah, that's got crimes for girls. And it's like, just embrace that you are deeply moved and have big emotions because mm. like people do. And then, you know, as I got older, I was like, it's stupid to just sit there and be like, no, don't cry ever. When like you want to cry, just cry. It's movies good. The movie is good. And yeah, so I think I just have made an act of choice at some point when I was like, you know, in my late teens and being mm. like, well, no, wait, I'm an adult. I'm going to cry because I want to. Exactly. <laughs> I'm going to be moved by this movie. Brookback Mountain's very sad at the end. <laughs> very sad about it. One of the weirder scenes that I started crying to, because usually I, I still do the thing where it's like I don't really cry in the cinema. I will if I'm watching it at home by myself, but this internalized misogyny goes deep. <laughs> and partially it's the thing of like, I don't want to make a spectacle. Like, yeah, I don't yeah. want people to see me. Yeah, I don't want people to see me like wiping away my wet face. But the weirdest scene that I teared up to and like openly tears falling down my face in the cinema was that scene in Wonder Woman where you see all the women on the island training. You see all the Amazon warriors just going about their day. There's like people in the background taking care of children. There's people in the foreground fighting. And I had no idea. Like it was such a scene setting filler kind of scene mm. that it was very strange to me why I just like suddenly started weeping but I did and I think I realize now it's because it's like I never ever seen that before an entire island of all women being strong in all of the different ways that was incredible that whole movie should have been set on the th- uh, mascara, to be honest <laughs> Yeah, I think I know somebody that was said they cried during a lot of the like fight scenes yeah. in Wonder Woman because they're just like, I've never seen women fighting in a way that is shot like this, where it's purely about their strength and is not yeah. about like, oh, but it's a sexy woman doing some like sexy moves. And they were just like, it just was this overwhelming experience of like female strength that they were like incredibly moved by it, which I think is pretty valid. I can't describe what sets it apart from something shot with a heavy male gaze because... Wonder Woman was definitely... I said, it's one of those things you can't really describe to you, but you know it when you see it. Yeah, mm. it's definitely there. It's absolutely there. Like, I've seen heaps of scenes with strong, in inverted commas, women fighting, but mm. nothing like Wonder Woman. That was just next level chills up my spine. I didn't know what I wanted until I saw it kind of feeling. I love seeing women being allowed to be ugly in films. Yes. Mm. Or at least, like, non-conventionally pretty. Um, so, like, that's why, you know, I sort of have this huge and undying love for Melissa McCarthy films. Because she unapologetically fills the space that she is in. Mm-hmm. And doesn't make sure to be pretty all the time. So, like, I watched um, Spy on a plane relatively recently, and it was just incredible. Like, very, very good plane movie. And to have her just kind of fill space, but also be so sharply juxtaposed to um, Marina Baccarin, was also in it, who is gorgeous. Like... You know, your typical kind of movie star beauty. And then Melissa McCarthy is like, no, I'm also here. And I'm being good at my job. And it's just like, yes. Hmm. I need more of that. Yeah, Yeah. I I love it when you see women who aren't, like, Hollywood pretty or, like, stick thin or whatever, and it's not a thing that's remarked on as part of the character, that that's like, oh, like, this is the ugly character, or, like, this is a fat character, let's make lots of fat jokes about them. 
Like, because it's so rare <laughs> that you actually see somebody that looks like an everyday person or, like, even looks unattractive. And that's not a huge plot point because so often it's like this thing where Hollywood actresses are, you know, they're rewarded for going ugly in a film and like they're doing this film which is about their struggles with their appearance, blah, 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 instead of, you know, knowing that like, yeah, a person that does not look like a Hollywood superstar has a rich and rewarding life full of other interests and (laughs) lots of things they're good at. I mean... So often, like, facial differences equated to being, you know, evil or bad or Mm. whatever. Like, Nanny McPhee is probably the, like, clearest example of it, where, like, the whole moral is her ugliness disappears when their bad behavior does. Oh, wow. And it's like, this is a bad lesson to be teaching children. Yeah, Yeah, the whole sort of, like, outer beauty and inner beauty being correlated thing in a lot of it comes from like a lot of old fables and fairy tales and things but that, you know it's still very connected in film and it's just like yeah. <laughs> very painful to watch something that i really want to see more of especially since hollywood is churning out superhero movies is i want to see women who are muscular and built not like mm. just muscular enough to convince you that she's strong but still quite like lean and thin to comply with the our like eurocentric idea of feminine beauty Mm. but i want to see women who are built like i want to look at them and believe that they could beat me up and crush me with their hands like Mm. that is what i want to see shredded Mm. women superheroes (laughs) that's awesome yeah that's true i think we've we've discussed it on the podcast before but like in the expanse where they people searching for a particular character who's called like Gunny in the series they wanted someone who was tall and obviously strong and non-white and the casting director said like you know he found it really really difficult until he came to Auckland and saw Samoan women and he was like oh you know that that's what I want (laughs) (laughs) because it was just so difficult in the sort of traditional circles in which he was casting to find a tall like obviously jacked woman mm-hmm. it's just like oh no one of my favorite actors is cynthia revo who's mostly done broadway stuff but is now after being very much discovered in like 2016 on broadway with color purple is now doing a whole lot of film stuff that's going to be coming out in the next few years so i'm very excited for that but she's like this incredible talent really yeah like incredible voice as a singer she's got this beautiful beautiful amazing belt singing voice she's also like a big fashion icon that really beautifully dressed and loves posting about fashion and is interested in fashion and she's also like she's run marathons and like you post like workout training videos of her doing like bar pull chin up things and like these intense intense strength related workouts which none of which seems to you know she's not a person that posts about diet or like about looking a particular way it's to do with body strength and conditioning and making sure that she's fit enough that she can do an eight show week and she has big muscles you know she's still like a pretty petite diminutive woman but you know she's pretty muscular because she's like lifting weights and doing like bar pull-ups and stuff and she still wears like these very feminine clothing and is able to balance as I want my body is strong I like train really hard to have this bodily strength but that doesn't Mm. mean that I don't get to be feminine and I mm. still can be as feminine as I want to be and this is how I like to dress and do these like beautiful eye makeup <laughs> at the same time and she's she's really great I love that basically I want more superheroes to look like Serena Williams yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I was gonna be like Serena Williams looks great in mm. really feminine clothes 
and also just kicks butt. Kicks like, butt. <laughs> yes. Oh God, I love her. Do you guys have any thoughts about Oscar stuff coming up? Oh, I did hear that. Uh, oh, what was the all woman comedy that you were talking about? Uh, Girls Trip. Girls Trip. Yeah. Apparently, um, the Academy didn't even watch it. <sighs> that is what I heard. Yeah. Which is just like. I feel like that's the sort of thing where it's not like a serious film, so it's not going to get consideration for this sort of thing, which is annoying. Yeah. It got Golden Globe nom, I think Tiffany Haddish got a supporting actress in comedy, but like it's always a thing with the the Oscars where there's certain types of films which are more Oscar-y than others. But I think, you know, stuff like Get Out getting nominated for yeah. this film is pretty cool because horror film that's not only horror but you know a black led black directed horror Documentary. film from yeah. a first time director it's very much not Oscar material uh, in the usual sort of sense so it's pretty awesome that they're actually recognising that at least with a nomination I feel about the Oscars the same way I feel about the Grammys which is like it's not representative of what's good and I disagree Quite with the often, choices yeah. a lot but also Get Out is nominated yes <laughs> It's like, I shouldn't care, but I care. I think somebody was saying that about Golden Globes, is that when it's people that you don't like winning, then you're like, oh, nobody cares about the stupid award anyway. And then when yeah. somebody <laughs> you do like, you're like, yay, it's my favourite. Yeah. Um, like, yeah, we're like Oscar nominated, woo! I mean, I feel like I kind of feel this about all awards things, mm. to yeah. be honest. It's kind of how everybody is about any type of award. Like, if you've ever been up for consideration for an award, then the general gossip, like, talk around it is just like, oh, it's just some people's opinions. I mean, I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. And then, like, <laughs> if the person that you like wins, <laughs> then you're all like, yeah, awesome, I knew you were going to win. You were, I'm so proud. Yeah, I think it's kind of a thing that we, we do. Because it's like, obviously, all awards are just these people's opinions and they're related to taste and some sort of level of like what's expected and what's gone before and what convention dictates and yet like the fact that there is an award makes people think about things differently and it it can mean a lot for cinema just in terms of future opportunities level because if something that is a little bit out of the norm does win an Oscar then like that proves to the general public or proves to, you know, the film establishment or whatever that that sort of film is worth making. Mm. It means, like, a lot more people then watch that film later as well. Exactly. So it sort of continues yeah. that film in the public consciousness, which I think even being nominated will do for Get Out, which is one mm. of the reasons I'm really excited for it. Yeah, totally. It's that thing where, I don't know, I talk to a lot of people who refer to awards generally as being like basically a marketing exercise, and it's kind of true. Like, if you get an award, then that's really good for the marketing of your film. So if it's the sort of film that deserves to have more financial success, then like getting in a nomination for something is, is real good. Whether or not we care about what these people think or not, other people do. Mm. And other people, lots of people don't really know much about films, but they're like, oh, I'm going to go see what all the Oscar nominees are. I'll get them out from the DVD store. And then they'll end up seeing something they might not otherwise have wanted to look at. All right. Thanks for tuning in and listening to us at Things of Interest. I've been Sophia Friend. And I'm Serena Chen. And Cassandra, where can everyone find you? Uh, so if you're in Wellington then you can come and see our upcoming productions um, with Red Scare Theatre Company and have a look at us at redscare.co.nz that's like red the colour and scare the I've been scared by something 
emotion feeling and if you are interested uh, the soundtrack to the musical that we produced last year Milady a Meninist Musical which you guys would probably really enjoy I think <laughs> is available on Bandcamp beautiful well it's been a good episode we've talked about lots of films that we enjoy Star Wars and the Oscars and everything in between really as always you can find things of interest online at www.thingsofinterest.co or on twitter at casting interest and you can email us at castinginterest at gmail.com and as always if you like this episode uh feel free to leave us a review on itunes leave us some stars and if you really liked this episode tell someone about it we don't advertise at all so you telling other people how cool we are is how other people find out how cool we are And as always, stay interesting.